0: goes, Rene Girard needs no introduction to this audience. I thought instead of introducing uh, our speaker to his audience, I would introduce his audience to our speaker, because you know more about him than he does about you. But this morning as I thought about this, I suddenly realized in this moment of reflection, I suddenly realized that among the nobler motives for telling Rene about you, there was a darker one. Uh (laughs) I realized that um, in doing what I'm about to do, I would be violating a central tenet of what I suppose you could call the Girardian Ethic. Now let me explain. Key to so much of what Professor Girard has done is the idea of human envy. Probably nobody else in our time has more thoroughly explored the pernicious effects of human envy than Professor Girard. His latest book is entitled The Theater of Envy, exploring that in Shakespeare and so on. I suddenly realized that in telling Professor Girard, how wonderful you are and how wonderful it is to be able to perform the teaching role in your presence that I would be doing the most amazing. I would be standing before you trying to entice none other than René Girard into envy.
1: <laughs> now, too,
0: you see, I have read uh, René's books on this subject, so I know not only that that is a morally vile thing to do, but more to the point, I realize how perilous it is for me. Because, you see, if I'm successful, and... I make Rene realize that teaching can't get any better than this. He might decide to retire to Sonoma and offer an occasional course in Homer or Dante, in which case I would have to go out and find another kind of a job. (laughs) So there's a tremendous peril involved in this, but I can't resist it. So let me introduce your audience to you, Rene. These are folks who come here and have many of them over the months and years, to think about what it means to be alive on a small planet, to think about what it means to be the beneficiaries of the Western cultural tradition, to think about what it means to be the heirs of the biblical religious tradition, and to ask, these, ask questions and think about these things in the presence of certain important texts. And we have put before ourselves innumerable texts, to Homer, Dante, Eliot, Lannery O'Connor, the biblical texts, and so on. And we've pondered. And it's been a rich experience. You're about to find out, after, when you get to the questions, you're about to find out that there is intellectual vitality and spiritual depth and curiosity uh, out there in the heartlands. And we experience it here quite often. And when we, and occasionally we experience it in those rare moments. We've all been here in those rare moments when there's nothing like it. So these are wonderful people who not only are friends, but who are patrons of mine who make it all possible, who help pay the rent and keep the coffee on. I think you're going to love being with Now, as for introducing Professor Gerard, see, I was not going to introduce... I was going to just say, well, we all know about him. We've been talking about him for years. Oh, and that's the other thing I wanted to tell you. <laughs> for about the last five or six years, every text we put in front of us seemed to be speaking in Girardian terms. Now, of course, these are ancient texts, many of them. And it reminded me of this thing that uh, Jorge Borges said about uh, in his essay on Kafka. He said, great writers create their own precursors. That's to say, after you read them, then everybody that you read who wrote their things before them sounds as though they were leading up to it. It's been absolutely true since we came upon Renee's work. So, I wasn't going to do a lengthy introduction for Renee, and I'm not, really, except I suddenly realized that I had to do something of an introduction because today is all Souls death. You don't see the connection. Let me explain. <laughs> In the lectionary for today, the first reading is from the 19th chapter of the book of Job. And in that, Job is fending off his so-called friend's reasoning. And he is saying, "As for me. I know that my vindicator lives, and that he will at last stand forth upon the dust. Now, don't get me wrong. Even Rene's most ardent supporters Uh, have not ascribed to him messianic quality. However, it has to be said. You know, uh, Professor Girard wrote a book entitled Job, the Victim of His People. If you haven't read it, go out and buy it and read it. It's an absolutely stunning book in which he argues what he always argues, which is that at the heart of so much of our cultural enterprise is a victimage mechanism. But it's a powerful analysis of culture, but more than that, and more importantly than that, it is a powerful reinterpretation of the meaning of the biblical tradition. And uh, we, I'm, I'm sure all of you know, I certainly know, that we are uh, in the presence this morning of a, of a man who's done uh, work that is decisive and lasting. Uh, and it's, it's a real privilege. Uh, finally, let me just quote something Uh, that someone uh, wrote a few years ago about uh, René and his work. Uh, This is from uh, Sander Goddard. What has occurred since Girard began writing in the early 60s is a veritable explosion of interest in his work in all major fields of Western inquiry. By the end of the 70s, Girardian thinking had gained a foothold in literary study, in classical study, In anthropology, in psychoanalysis, and in religious studies. But in the last two or three years, the mimetic hypothesis has begun to be extended to fields less commonly associated with the human sciences, fields like economics and political science, and most recently the hard sciences of physics and biology. So, Without further ado, let me introduce to you the man who started all that trouble. And uh, I think he's going to speak to us for a few (coughs) minutes, and then uh, we can uh, ask questions. Renee, it's great
2: to have you. Well, I did not need this introduction to know that the enterprise of uh, Gail Bailey is a very unique one, you know. And I'm full of admiration for it. And people talk a lot about... Free enterprise nowadays, but there is very little free enterprise of the mind and and spirit, you know. And so much of our intellectual life today is in huge uh, enterprises, which have become completely uh, bureaucratic. That uh, uh, a great responsibility is on you because the the real thinking may be done by groups like you, rather than in these huge factories that we have uh, down there in Metropolis. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do here, talking to you, but uh, I think maybe I should say a few words about the concept, which is uh, absolutely central to uh, my work, and how everything comes from that, because uh, Gill is right, uh, I'm a one-track mind, and uh, I'm always working on the same thing. It's, it started pretty slowly with literary works, and I was diffident about myself. And uh, probably what is most central Is uh, the idea of uh, what I call mimetic rivalry. Uh, Many people think that uh, mimetic desire is something uh, a little strange and out of the way, you know, that it might be an appendage to uh, uh, desire as Freud sees it. And maybe the use of the word desire itself is questionable. It's probably because mimetic desire, yes, but why not use another word than uh, desire? you know, for instance, the existentialists use that word "project" when they think about uh, mm, about uh, what should I say the forward motion of man? I think that desire is a dangerous word because we see it in a psychoanalytical context, and therefore. It may be too sexual, or the connotations are too sexual for mimetic desire. But the existential word project may be too intellectual, you know. One could think of other words like uh, uh, Bergson's, Elan Vital, you know, but that would be too biological. So maybe for mimetic desire, the, the right word isn't there. Uh, That may be one of the reasons that sometimes often I'm tempted to use the Greek word mimesis just by itself. Mimesis means imitation in Greek, but mimesis takes you back to Plato, you know, because in Plato, it's an enormous thing, and it's a substance of reality because real things, you know, this table, this chair is the mimesis of something ideal up there. I don't have to tell you that. But mimesis is also bad and scary. And no one knows why Plato is scared of uh, mimesis. Uh, But maybe the Greek word itself is is not very good precisely because it has these dark connotations that uh, we do not understand. But I would say this. If we think of desire as a subject-object relationship only. We think of the subject in purely solipsistic terms, you know, as if the subject were completely alone in the world with his object, which is, of course, the romantic view of love, for instance, you know, what in Shakespeare they call true love, which Shakespeare always uses ironically. So, if you have a view of desire as a dual relationship between subject and object, you're really in a solipsistic view. You don't take into account the whole of reality. Probably what's predicated beyond, be, behind mimetic desire is the opposite of what Freud thinks, you know, because Freud thinks that human beings always know what to desire, and they all desire the same thing, their mother, their mother. See what I mean? (laughs) And mimetic desire may be a way of saying that the human being is the animal, the creature that doesn't know what to desire and needs to be told. We are told by culture, you know. In certain cultures, In certain Indian cultures of South America, they ate these big worms in uh, rotten trees, you know, which they loved. And the culture taught them that. And some anthropologists have eaten them and say that actually they are very good once you get beyond the first feeling of disgust. But these people do not do it anymore because the Westerners have been making fun of them. And have much more influence today on them than their own culture. Therefore, they are no longer eating these worms. I think it's an excellent example of what mimetic desire is. In a way, at a level where it's not competitive. It's competitive in the sense that if you eat all the worms and all the rotten trees in the jungle, uh, you start fighting for them. But Culture, in a way, dictates our desires, and we are not aware of it uh, because we are not even aware of any form of imitation. But what mimetic desire talks about mostly is the fact that uh, it's not always culture as such that dictates our desire, especially when culture is getting weaker. It's the people around us and the people closest to us. And this is where, of course, mimetic rivalry comes in. And probably uh, literature had a lot to do. Mimetic desire, one might say mimetic rivalry, is first a theory of conflict. Why do people fight? And uh, if you, uh, most theories of conflict, if we have any, because I'm not sure we really have any. Are in terms of uh, aggression, really? And certainly, aggression exists in societies like ours. You know, anonymous aggression. But it's it's a very special human situation. It's a big city, you know, in which people snatch your purses and that sort of thing. In uh, normal human culture, you have no such situation. Even in our world, most people, most crimes are committed between people who know each other. You know, therefore, if you have a theory of aggression, it is a scapegoat theory already, because immediately you divide the world into aggressors and aggressed people. The aggressors are certain people. If we could get rid of them, maybe re-educate them is not as bad. But uh, if we can get rid of them, we have no more conflict. I think that the greatest writer for Mimetic Desire is Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is haunted, I think, by the case of the childhood friends, you know, who imitate each other in everything, and it's always worked, and they feel very good about it. They read the same books, they study the same uh, uh, works, they love the same food, they watch the same things together. And it always works. And their friendship is the fact that they desire the same thing. If one doesn't desire what the other desires, he says, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with us? And tries to bring him to his view. And then suddenly, this becomes a, a conflict without any change because they fall in love with the same girl. And they are so used to friendship being imitation that they tell each other to fall in love with the same girl. When they are in love with a girl, they want the other friend, you know. And Shakespeare has dealt with this subject all his life. His first comedies are about that, and The Winter's Tale is still about that. So he was haunted by that, by the continuity between the best in human relations and the worst. The fact that they are so close to each other that in a way they cannot be... So this is mind-boggling, I think, to someone like Shakespeare, and maybe it should be to all of us. And maybe our whole view of psychology, of all sorts of things, is an attempt to get away from this. Or maybe one might say, what is original sin? If original sin is really original if it belongs to all of us, it's something probably we cannot see. We cannot put outside of ourselves. Therefore, maybe this has something to do with original sin. The fact that this type of conflict, you cannot blame it on anybody. Because it's the same thing as friendship. So in the two gentlemen of Rona, this is exactly what happens. But if you read Antony and Cleopatra, you will see that the relationship between Antony and Octavian is exactly the same. And there Shakespeare defines it completely. I won't quote him right, but he says, that which is the cause of their unity will be the cause of their discord. As simple as that. There is no difference between the two. The cause of their unity is that they want uh, Rome. They want to have uh, power against uh, and, uh, against uh, uh, Caesar. Do so, you see what I mean? And the cause of their discord is the same. As soon as Caesar is gone, you see, so uh, this is a very stark and stern view of uh, human relations, and suddenly Shakespeare doesn't say that all human relations are there. But it's fundamental about human conflict. And I guess in order to see why mimetic desire can be a psychopathology, you have to start from that. Because you can see, for instance, in, in the plays of Shakespeare, that there are many aspects of what psychopathologists would call perverse desire, or did call perversities today? Don't have any, so, and you can see that they are they are completely tied up with that. the 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 fact that uh, the two gentlemen of Verona fall in love with the same girl, in a way, is their mutual jealousy, but it's also a fascination with each other, you know, which uh, can be called quote-unquote, unhealthy, where the rival becomes more important than the object of design. And uh, in a way, when the obstacle between me and this object, which is also my model, becomes something I cannot do without if desire increases because of that model that stands between me and the object, desire will decrease as soon as you obtain that object because that desire is transfigured, of course, by the... Therefore, mimetic desire is a theory of disenchantment. You know, sometimes when I talk to psychoanalysts, I say, Freud says nothing about disenchantment, you know, He was still living in the past. We live in a society of disenchantment. Gil has been building me up, and so inevitably the life of ideas is (laughs) mimetic desire, and it's very bad for me to stand here with you, because... (laughs) (laughs) But it's also a theory of disenchantment. And if this type of conflict is true, is real, of course it forces you to ask questions about human association, the very possibility of human association, questions about human culture. Uh, Therefore, I think mimetic desire with the scapegoat theory becomes a theory of culture. But this would be the way, in a way, my thinking occurred on uh, this subject. Mimetic desire is central and the various aspects, psychological, theory of conflict, theory of literature, uh, theory of culture, are really very much a part of it. Therefore, it is uh, totally uh, transdisciplinary, whatever they may say, and so forth. But I never intended to go into a theory of the social sciences or any such thing. I was drawn into it in a way because of the nature of Mimetic design, which I think forces you to think of human beings in terms of relations, really. How how can we think in terms of relations rather than to think in terms of separate entities that would precede the relations, you know? Probably from an intellectual point of view, that's what's basic about uh, the view of mimetic desire. It's very difficult to think in terms of relations. Uh, we think in terms of uh, individuals as if they were marbles in a bag. Or something. That's why we have a psychology. Psychology is always psychology, whatever they may say, of the individual. And in uh, Freud, desire is primarily individual. Sociology is a bunch of these marbles, Or a collective individual. Uh, And I think mimetic desire is essentially literary because if you write a book about a great uh, statesman or Napoleon or Hitler or Stalin, you will talk about their conquest, you know, you will do all sorts of things. But if you write a play or a novel, you will have to show them living with five or six people next to them, and you'll be in a totally different world. You 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 will be forced to root yourself in uh, small interactions, you know, which is probably the the privileged field of uh. and you can think of the individual or society as a whole only as ideal cases which would stem from these small interactions, rather than to assume you know what they are, the individual. You see what I mean? Uh, I could continue like this for a long time, because I would say that ultimately this means that you want a, a description, what uh, Clifford Geertz, you know the anthropologist, calls a thick description of human relations. But this is what philosophers 50, 40 years ago are still to today called phenomenology. So there is undoubtedly a phenomenological aspect about uh, uh, mimetic desire because uh, literature is description of uh, human relations. But phenomenology will not do it entirely, because there is no phenomenology of the scapegoat phenomenon. In other words, you cannot Find it in yourself. I think you can find many things about mimetic desire by watching yourself. But by definition, we know only the scapegoats of others. We don't have any ourselves. That's why we love to talk about scapegoats. Because, uh, you see, we live in a society where everybody talks about scapegoats, and no one has any. So who knows if the real unconscious is not there to, to start with, you see. And you can even see it statistically. And you cannot reach in there because probably the scapegoat thing is always that which helps you not to see the type of conflict I was talking about at the beginning. That conflict, conflict which is so much there and so much mixed up with our best uh, Attitudes, you see that uh, it's very hard to face it, to confront it as a human reality. So I I don't like to talk about ethics, but if I had to talk about ethics, I would start from that, of course. But I don't want to talk forever, and uh, I'm going to ask you questions, to ask you to ask questions. Do you think that mimesis
1: (coughs) is something that we're born with, like part of original sin, or is it conferred upon us
2: by the culture we grow in? Well, mimesis itself must be considered as uh, something fundamentally human, and is not bad. You cannot say it's bad because without uh, without it, there would be no acquisition of anything of culture and uh, you know we know we know that uh, human intelligence is connected with it language speech everything you see uh, uh, acquisition the acquisition of any kind of knowledge is essentially mimetic and uh, the power of the brain if it is measured some day, will it be measured in this term. Oh, I'm I, probably wrong, but uh, you see what I mean? One should, uh, the thing not to do is to regard mimesis as a bad thing. You see, mimetic rivalry has very bad consequences, but mimetic rivalry itself cannot be regarded as a bad thing first per se, because uh, mimetic rivalry is absolutely essential to, uh, well, our culture, we may look at it as very bad in some ways, but its very uh, uh, productivity, its ability to produce in all areas, not only economic, but intellectual and so forth, is so fundamentally tied up to uh, mimetic rivalry. Uh, the, The genius of our society is probably that it can Channel mimetic rivalry; it can allow more mimetic rivalry than any other community. I think that primitive communities, the more cultural rules you have, you know, in certain Australian uh, uh, uh. aboriginal cultures, you see you have eighteen subcategories of uh, kingship laws, and they are very small groups. This means that, practically, you're forced to marry the woman that the culture designates for you. So the more contrary to what we think, you know, every year the media tell us we live in a more complex world. It's not true. Our world is getting simpler all the time from the point of view of cultural rules, or from the point of view of language. A primitive system has the most complex syntactic rules whereas English has practically none left, you see what I mean? It's just a bunch of words strung together, you know, that are always meaningful, which is the genius of that language. Therefore, the more culture you have, the more it prevents choice. And I think that it prevents choice in order to avoid mimetic rivalry. But it avoids mimetic rivalry through another form of mimesis. You imitate these rules. Therefore, uh, culture is how to uh, have forms of imitation that are non-competitive. And our culture can uh, tolerate and allows a tremendous amount of competition, which we find very uh, hard to take, and we suffer from it, and we protest, and we demonstrate, and and we have countercultures, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it is the source of uh, its incredible power, drive, and uh, sort of thing. So why is it able to do that? I think it's connected to the uh, disappearance of uh, uh, traditional forms of culture, which itself is associated to the, uh, the Christian. This disappearance of traditional forms of culture in a primitive society, I think brings about the type of crisis that brings back ritualized forms, you know, these complex forms of culture. Whereas in our society, this crisis is permanent and uh, has many bad aspects, and I don't want to, but uh, creates a society which is more and more open, so open today that uh, it covers the entire world. And I don't think we can deny that anymore. I think we live in a single culture more and more. And uh, I think that national cultures seem to be on the way out, you know. Mm -hmm. Even if you call it the Americanization of the world, that's the Europeans who call it that. Mm -hmm. Americans don't feel that way. They feel, in a way, amazed by the modern world, uh, oppressed by it, or victims of it, and powerless in front of it, just as Europeans do. But Europeans have a good name for it. They call it Americanization. You see what I mean? (laughs) Which is another form of scapegoating.
0: (laughs) The disappearance of our culture here, we we term a a bastardization.
2: Yes, that's uh, right. But if you know this country well, you know that in the East, local culture is exactly what it is in Europe. Uh, it 's not true maybe in California, of course, no. California is more of the way, but uh, you know the Baltimore blacks are very different from the Boston blacks. There is a local culture with its food, its dialect and so on that 's what europeans don 't see. They fear that this faceless uh, anonymous world is in a way the spread of something which is specifically American, which isn 't true So i 'm sorry. Uh,
1: One of the things that Gill has spoken to us about is the uh, the chances of there being a type of cure to this mimetic pathology. I I see you say that mimesis is is good, but that it also is susceptible to a certain pathology. Uh, Gill has said that we can look, uh, and we've heard him say often, that we can look in the various uh, religious traditions on the planet uh, as as a way of getting after a cure to the pathology, particularly the Christian uh, uh, gospel. Now, I know that your work, I've seen some of your work that has dealt with the, the problematics of scapegoat ritual in religion, but I have never seen or heard uh, your feelings about, of this gospel nature, of, of the of the possible approach to a cure or a or something through, uh, through the teachings of the Christian gospel. Too.
2: Well, because I don't think I have anything original to say on that subject I think it's all there Uh, now we live in a world where collective forces or I would say mimetic forces are more and more powerful and I think if you are in the academic world you can see it very clearly that beyond a certain critical threshold maybe when numbers are getting so large you know What we call academic fields today include thousands of people, if you go to the the early historical situations. Therefore, even there, among intellectuals who should be most free of it, we have uh, uh, fads and fashions, which are mimetic effect. So very little independent uh, thinking. Therefore, the main duty is to resist this I think that what's specific about the Gospel is that it's not against imitation because it doesn't say you can do without it. This is what individualism uh, says. If you look at the Gospel of John, it's all imitation of uh, the Father, the relationship between Jesus and his Father. But Paul says, imitate me. Uh, Jesus says, "Imitate me because I imitate the Father." And Paul says, "Imitate me because I imitate Jesus, who imitates the Father." Therefore, there is a good non-appropriative imitation, which is uh, uh, which is aware of uh, these dangers, and which, of course, includes uh, a certain what should I say, certain practical. I mean, uh, in the gospel, the ascetic is not emphasized, but in most uh, religions, it is. The gospel is not against it, but the gospel seems to say uh, that, uh, uh, in the same way, that self-control, you know, we know about self-control in matters uh, that deal with the appetites. You know, we think in terms maybe of the, uh, uh, of the cardinal sins or something of sort. But self-control exists in mimetic matters too, I think. Resistance to fashion. You see, all that sort of thing. You can see that the great Eastern religions what they call resistance to the getting out of the world, is really that. And uh, I think it's present in uh, Christianity, too. It certainly was the idea behind uh, uh, the monastic movement in uh, the early centuries, you know, or uh, the notion of the individual, not as the modern world has it, but as the Protestant... uh, churches uh, had it, or they called it in a different way. But that uh, resistance to mimetic desire, I think, is a difficult problem. If you take the great novelists, you know, like uh, Proust and Dostoevsky, they have the holy idiot. The holy idiot, in a way, is the ideal. Who is the holy idiot? He's a man without desire, like uh, Prince Moshkin. But very often, he, does, he just doesn 't know about that desire, or in, um, in post, you know the grandmother when they discover the family discovers that so and so is a snob and so on she doesn 't see it she 's too innocent for that, so in a way she 's the ideal of the novelist, but we are not that way. We are in a world where we have to know a lot, but most of the time this knowledge is tied up to an increase in desire. And this is the dreadful thing about mimetic desire, is that it doesn't believe that knowledge necessarily is a cure. You know, it's not Socratic in that sense. So more knowledge, more obsession with it, more concern for people who are steeped in... uh, imitation, you see what I mean, or more satiric inclination and so forth, all the great writers show you that it's part of the game, that it's not out, you see? Therefore, they make ethics, in that sense, extremely difficult. And uh, from a religious point of view, inevitably, that's where the question of grace comes in. But there you're beyond ethics, because the the classical Christian theories of grace tell you, you cannot do it by yourself. And uh, this is a pretty tough teaching, you know, because the first time Jesus starts talking about these things, everybody leaves him. (laughs) You see. I, I'm afraid we may well still be at the same point. <laughs> we may not have invented too much in respect to that, you know.
1: I, I'm just wondering, in the same light, um, Gil was talking about The Tempest. Um, at the very end, I think the narrator or Polonius, I don't remember who, is talking in a way to the audience and sort of inclu- including them in this whole process of, of all this strife that is taking
2: it's Prospero who says that he's breaking his wand uh, as a magician. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, to please,
1: you no, I'm I'm through pleasing
2: you. Oh yeah, that's true. That's right. Which is,
1: uh, you yeah. Is
2: peace. And at the same time, the Tempest is a play, in which Prospero, you know, is thinking about vengeance, mm-hmm. and hmm? yeah. and bringing in he has the Tempest. What is the Tempest? The Tempest, all his enemies are there on his island, and he can produce a tempest or put an end to a tempest. And after this tempest, no one is even wet. What is that tempest? It's writing. It's obviously writing. And to bring them into his island, the the island of the play is the book, is the play of Shakespeare, is a metaphor for the play. But Prospero, you know, there could perform vengeance and forgets about it. The the vengeance ultimately is not there. Uh, it vanishes into thin air, you know?
1: I guess the thing that I took from that is that in the more popular culture, like there's a lot of movies that are pointing out the problem of violence. Not a lot. There's a few movies about the, pointing out the issues of violence, but it just seems like what that's doing is feeding the whole process
2: again. Yeah. Um, well because we live in an age which is probably very much like uh, the England of Shakespeare in the England of Shakespeare there was an escalation of violence at the level of uh, show business if you look at the tragedies around Shakespeare or the first whether or not Titus Andronicus is Shakespeare's work or someone else's, it is the most ridiculously violent play you know and I don't think it's and um, obviously This is due to the fact that human relations, uh, when human relations are getting worse, on the one hand, you have uh, forms of politeness, you know, of courtesy, become more complex. In this country or in France, for instance, you don't say "good day," "good morning," "good night." You say "have a good day." You extend it. In France now, they don't say "bonjour" anymore the taxis say, bonne journée. this evolution took place at the same time, and there is no influence there. It's not in anglais, franco-english, not at all. I think it's due to the fact that human relations are more problematic today than they were 30 years ago because of some of the things we were talking about. Therefore, there is a tendency for people to you know, try to improve them. And at the level of show business, this tremendous escalation of violence, which people say is meaningless, nevertheless, is symptomatic of something. If you look at the values of current movies, it's absolutely appalling, you know. On the one and think of the schizophrenia. On the one hand, you know, if you wink at a woman in the office, you can be charged with sexual harassment. And you go to the movie next door and there you see rape after rape and all that, total contempt for the human body, you know. This is a fantastic universe in which we live. But the Elizabethan world was a little bit like that, probably, because unlike France, where at the same time they had a civil war, so the two parties were actually fighting in the field, at the court of Elizabeth, the Protestants, the Catholic, you know, the sectarians were watching each other, still on speaking terms. But it was a world of extreme tension. And uh, uh, a, a crisis in human relations which we, uh, of which we don't have the equivalent of course but I think that what happens in show business today is symptomatic of this type of crisis
0: uh, it's getting on I, I usually the uh, procedure is to give the speaker a an easy lob shot at the end, you know, and then present you with a tie or something. <laughs> but, um, I have a question that I would like for you to take a little longer with, so I'm jumping in a little sooner, uh, because I know we need to go here in a few minutes. Uh, but, uh, in part, this is a, um, simply coincidental because today is All Souls Day. Uh, but there are other things involved in it as well. Uh, Jack was talking about the, uh, the tension that comes from the ex, but living in a world which is involved in the expose of the scapegoat mechanism. Mm-hmm. There is, each of us feels this kind of, can be schizophrenic, feels this tension, being the victim, the victimizer, not knowing where one stands and so on. But also there is the tension involved, that, that has to do with being in the world that is uh, involved in the exposé of mimesis itself. Yeah. And uh, so I wanted to quote to you a little passage from Auden and get you to talk about that. Uh, this is from the Age of Anxiety. And in that play, uh, four people gather in, uh, in a wartime bar in New York. And at first they just sort of eye each other, and then finally they find themselves a... Come finally together and begin to talk out of this sort of existentialist uh, uh, quagmire that they're in. But there's a passage that's, this is this is one of those texts that I said, you know, uh, great writers create their own uh, precursors. Well, Auden is one of your precursors. So uh, one, of nice. is, uh, <laughs> one of these characters is Imble. One of these characters is Imble. And uh, the narrator describes him this way. He suffered from the anxiety about himself and his future which haunts like a bad smell the minds of most young men, though most of them are under the illusion that their lack of confidence is a unique and shameful fear, Uh which, if confessed, would make them an object of derision to their normal contemporaries. Mm -hmm. Accordingly, they watch others with a covert passionate curiosity. What makes them tick? What would it feel like to be a success? Here is someone who is nobody in particular. There, an obvious failure, yet they do not seem to mind. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? What is their secret? And then a moment later, the narrator says about this same character, So, fully conscious of the attraction of his uniform to both sexes, he looked around him, slightly contemptuous when he caught an admiring glance, and slightly peaked when he did not. (laughs) It was the night of all (laughs) souls. So I wonder if you would comment on uh, on the... psychological tension that comes from living in a world where the mimetic process itself is becoming visible.
2: Yeah, this is quite a program, you know, (laughs) instant. (laughs) But I can tell you immediately that there is a text of Dostoevsky which is fairly close to that. You know, uh, it's uh, in The Idiot that uh, Moishkin has a moment when he says, uh, I felt like uh, a being totally disgraced, rejected by everybody and so forth, and I felt I was the only one. I didn't realize that others, you know, yeah. fairly uh, long development, which is very different in its uh, mood and tonality uh, because they are such different writers, but the meaning is... uh, is very much the same. Well, how do people feel? Now, the question about uh, mimesis, you know, uh, It it's very easy to say that they are against any revelation of it. And, uh, of course, I'm quite tempted to do that, you see. I'm quite tempted to do that because it's very... Uh, comforting for my ego, because I say all these bad reviews that I get, it's because I reveal something which uh, people don't want revealed, and they resist it, you know, to have the Freudian idea of uh, resistance. And uh, uh, I think it can be true, had a certain level, you know, that uh, mimesis is more scary than psychoanalysis because it puts the stress on the current rival, on the present problems. And in a way, it reveals what's so comforting about psychoanalysis, is that psychoanalysis, if you psychoanalyze yourself, uh, better still, if you are psychoanalysed by someone, He always tells you that it all comes from your own family and that the person you are having trouble with, man, woman, combination of the two, and so on, are really irrelevant. They are substitutes for someone else. Therefore, uh, isn't it a way of rebuilding some form of uh, individual cocoon, you know, in which you are... So maybe the dangerous thing about the mimetic, the fact that it may not be turned, I don't say that it can be, into psychotherapy, would be that uh, if you perform it, uh, you know, in an implacable fashion, it's too tough, it's too mean. You know, it's, it's just as what I was saying about conflict. I say real conflict, intense conflict, is when there is absolutely no difference with absolute friendship. That the things that make Caesar and so forth are also the cause of their discord. But is that good for conflict resolution? To make the Israeli and the Arabs aware of that? They are a little bit aware of it right now, <laughs> unfortunately. No. Conflict resolution must, must gain time. You know, It must invent differences. It must invent a middle ground on which you can maneuver, you know, and avoid. you see, So maybe mimetic knowledge is important for conflict resolutions,, so but can easily lead you to more manipulations. Because in a way you say, "Well, this is too much. You must uh, avoid it. What are the answers to these problems? I don't know, because I'm not a practical uh, uh, psychotherapist. Maybe it's true with some people that the shock treatment is good for you. You've been fooling yourself all your life, you know, and your petty rivalries with so and so are not uh, worth much, and it's better for you to face. It may be very good with someone. It may be very bad with others. You see. There is that marvelous passage in Dostoevsky, and I'm, I'm thinking of the idiot right now. You know, the idiot, uh, there is that old general, typical old Russian general, who lives in his past in his dreams, and he's inventing his past, of course. He was in Moscow when Napoleon was occupying it. So he's inventing for himself a role as a child where he was the confidant of Napoleon. And he's the one who advised him to leave Moscow when he did, you know. Totally mad. Totally mad. And when he's doing that with his buddies, they make fun of him. You know, they say, ah, stop that nonsense. We don't believe you. You're a fool, and so forth. And, in a way, in a world of sacrificial equilibrium, he's not in a very good shape, but he keeps going. And then one day he talks to Muishkin, the perfect man, and Muishkin respects him so much that he lets him speak. And the general is going into such a mad story that when finally he comes out of that, he's totally crushed, ashamed of himself. He realizes he made a fool of himself, and he, he dies the following night. <laughs> see what I mean? So talk about psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. you see? Only Dostoevsky can do these things, you know, which, uh, but so uh, I have no, I mean, there again to say that to be sure you have a practical answer is the height of folly, but probably the good psychiatrist is the one who knows that there is no practical answer and that you're taking risks, whatever you do. But at certain moments, you have to take these risks because not to take them would be worse. So in that sense, I'm a little different from what I used to be because before I was probably too much of an idealist. I thought maybe the wisdom of Protestantism is that it wants to enforce the gospel. But there is a wisdom of Catholicism which is that they realize we're still in a sacrificial world and that you must take it into account that you are in a world where inevitably there will be violence and that the sacrificial law still applies that the lesser violence is better than the greater one. You see? So if you start saying that, you already said too much because you justify sacrifice. So, you see, so you shouldn't say that. So, where is the truth? You see, but I, I, I think that the Catholic Protestant relations should be discussed in these terms. And, and in order to make them positive, you know, the two attitudes, to realize that they are complementary, but in a way which cannot be defined. Because if you presume to define it, you're saying too much. You're, you see what I mean? You're, And you're back in the mystery, in a way, of uh, human existence, which, uh, as soon as you start meddling in it, you're taking risks. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering anything.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been a great joy for me, and I'm sure it has been for you.
2: Well, I enjoyed it very much, too, and I thank you. Ben. And thank I you think you should be very grateful to have. been and I know you are.
0: <laughs> if you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website
1: at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum.org alloneword.org Thank you for your interest in our work.